بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیڈیز اینڈ جینٹلمین السلام علیکم اینڈ ویلکم ٹو ایپیزوڈ سیون آف دا پاکستان جیو اسٹریٹجک ریویو پوڈ کاسٹ ود یور ہوسٹ زکی خالد الاٹ آف ڈیولپمنٹس ٹیکن پلیس ان دا پاسٹ فورتھ نائٹ ویل بگن ود انڈیا بوسٹنگ اٹس انفلوئنس ان دا ویسٹرن انڈین اوشن ریسنٹلی دی اینول ڈیفینس ایکسپو ان انڈیا واز ہیلڈ ان لکھنؤ سٹی ان اتر پردیش اینڈ دا ہائی لائٹ آف دس ایڈیشن واز دیٹ فورٹین ڈیفینس منسٹرس فرام ایفریکا ہیڈ پارٹیسپیٹڈ وچ از کوائٹ ڈفرینٹ فرام دا پاسٹ اینڈ انٹرسٹنگلی فار دا فرسٹ ٹائم ایور مداگاسکر از ڈیفینس منسٹر راکتو نینیرا لیون جون ریچرڈ واز اے نیو پارٹیسپینٹ He held a bilateral meeting with his counterpart, Rajnath Singh, to implement an MOU for defense cooperation. Uh, it's worth pointing out that uh, India and Madagascar signed their, their first ever defense MOU in 2018. That was also in the, the Modi regime, Modi 1.0. And uh, formally, two months ago in December 2019, New Delhi decided to appoint a, a defense attache to Madagascar and coincidentally in the same month the Ministry of External Affairs formed a new Indian Ocean region which includes Sri Lanka, Maldives, Mauritius, Seychelles, Madagascar, Comoros and the French Reunion. So countries in the southern Indian Ocean were incorporated with those in the western and together they were named as the Indian Ocean region. So by and large whether it is from the foreign policy angle, the MEA, or the defense angle, the MOD, Madagascar forms a crucial component of uh, the Indian Ocean region of which India claims to be the net security provider. Uh, this is particularly important, the fact that in the previous podcast, if you remember, I mentioned that uh, uh, a cyclone had hit Madagascar. It was a uh, terrible natural disaster and New Delhi was quick to direct uh, Indian Navy to provide disaster relief and humanitarian assistance to the people of Madagascar. So via seashells they went over there, they provided them with their medical facilities and provisions on time which was deeply appreciated by the leadership of Madagascar. And this is obviously at the expense of uh, countries which haven't really focused on uh, Indian Ocean littorals, let alone uh, the part of East Africa which forms a crucial component of what will in decide in the future the strategic uh, battle space which in my view is going to be the Western Indian Ocean. There is a history behind that. You can listen to my previous podcasts and some of my articles on uh, my commentaries on the Western Indian Ocean. to understand where I'm coming from. So basically, uh, Madagascar, a small island country, uh, maybe not too significant for some, but uh, India's outreach uh, is uh, significant because these small gestures, these soft power initiatives, they have the potential to boost um, strategic relations. And the fact that India has very um, quickly elevated its uh, defense relations within two years with Um, uh, this country is quite interesting and uh, you really see that sort of uh, fast-tracked approach adopted for countries because uh, now it's been speculated that uh, 
New Delhi is going to um, train the defense forces of Madagascar. So again, that influence will be there, the military diplomacy. And um, reportedly, India plans to organize a summit for the Vanilla Island nations. Now, uh, the, the, the term Vanilla Island nations actually uh, is used to group together countries with common characteristics and uh, geographic locations, which includes Madagascar, Comoros, Seychelles, Mauritius, Mayotte, and uh, the French Reunion. Um, as far as Seychelles and Mauritius are concerned, India already has um, suitable influence over there, um, as a, particularly Seychelles when we talk about Indian naval surveillance and reconnaissance activities, and now Madagascar. So uh, as far as the Vanilla Island nations are concerned, Seychelles was already in the pocket, Mauritius was, um, they were, um, uh, ties were not bad, and now Madagascar. So, um, I mentioned in my previous podcasts, basically, uh, in my understanding, in the long-term perspective, it is East Africa, which is which could prove to be the bulwark uh, against uh, a hegemonic uh, Indo-US uh, expansionist agenda to assume dominance of the Western Indian Ocean. And obviously, that uh, whoever would control, um, this is just me talking, that whoever would control the Western Indian Ocean would uh, go on to control the Red Sea and ultimately the corridors leading to the Mediterranean. But that's uh, too long into the future. And uh, right now, um, the southwestern area of uh, the Indian Ocean in particular is uh, a place which is uh, not that disputed and there isn't much of a uh, something to contest to and uh, there's uh, neither China over there China's focus is not over there the US is also not as engaged in uh, southeastern Africa on the continental side as it should be uh, but Japan and India particularly India, there it has, it is making sure that its uh, footprint is established well uh, along the eastern seaboard of uh, Africa. So obviously that plays to the detriment of Pakistan in the long term. And these developments in, in the Western Indian Ocean, they one hopes that uh, the foreign office in Pakistan is keeping a keen eye on it. Coming to the next topic, it's quite controversial. It could uh, place analysts in two different diametrically opposed camps. It is about the Turkish-Russian confrontation in Syria. Now, we all know that uh, there is no love lost for Syria within the Turkish establishment, um, despite the fact that Turkey does not necessarily... Uh, support. In fact, it has uh, severe uh, reservations against forces supported by uh, Russia and especially Gulf Arab countries. Um, so Syria, but the problem is that uh, recently, since uh, April 2019, um, we all know that the Syrian government has been trying to take control of uh, Idlib province, which is a rebel stronghold. It's one of the few places, uh, uh, prominent places, where uh, Bashar al-Assad's forces have not been able to uh, establish the, the writ of the state. Uh, more than a thousand civilians have been killed, while hundreds remain displaced. Uh, 
and uh, just recently in the beginning of Feb, 3rd February to be precise, since 3rd February, Turkish, uh, the Turkish military has lost 14 soldiers to attacks by uh, Assad's forces. So uh, as of yet, at the time of recording this podcast, 14 Turkish soldiers have been, um, uh, they have been attacked and uh, killed by Bashar al-Assad's forces uh, within the span of uh, hardly two weeks. And in retaliation, uh, that's what Turkey claims that it retaliated. They claim to have killed a hundred Syrian troops. Uh, President Rajab Tayyab Erdogan, who is uh, currently on a visit to Pakistan, he accused Russia of committing massacres in support of Assad regime. The word massacre was used by him. And um, to support the existing boots on the ground, additional uh, an additional contingent of Turkish troops arrived on the 12th of Feb. And um, but. Uh, while Turkey claims that Russia is aiding Assad in trying to attack their forces for vested interests, Russia has not maintained silence and it, it would be uh, unwise to assume it would. It has hit back and accused Erdogan of a failure to neutralize terrorists because there are some apprehensions within the Russian establishment that Turkey is supporting certain, certain military organization, uh, militant organizations which are directly trying to uh, set back Russia's long-term energy and geostrategic goals in the Mediterranean via the Assad regime. So um, when you hit the Russian soft spot in the Mediterranean, you would definitely ex expect a response. And this is where um, Russia is not alone. Israel, Greece, um, uh, Cyprus, the, uh, including recently Egypt, they have also expressed severe reservations about uh, Turkey's new Mediterranean uh, policy, which they perceive is part of an expansionist agenda spearheaded by uh, President Erdogan. Now, uh, in his statement to his party's parliamentary meeting, President Erdogan uh, specifically mentioned that Turkish troops are being attacked by number one, Russian forces, and number two, Iran-backed militants. Now, obviously, he's referring to the Shiite proxies, um, which are functioning as part of uh, the Zenebiyun and the Fatimiyun brigades. And uh, when he talks about Iran-backed militants, he was careful not to specify any of them. But we know the consequences of these, that he is indirectly referring to uh, proxy foot soldiers, um, uh, mercenaries for hire by the uh, Iran's IRGC, the Quds Force who are paid to carry out um, uh, guerrilla warfare activities against um, what they claim are uh, jihadi sponsored by Arab Gulf countries. And this is uh, quite interesting because uh, a few, uh, just uh, not too long ago, uh, during the Kuala Lumpur summit, um, Erdogan was seen uh, flashing with uh, Hassan Rouhani of Iran and Mahathir Mohammed in Malaysia and now um, yeah, Erdogan is convinced that um, Iran is also colluding with the Russians to attack Turkish interests. Um, it would have been assumed that uh, because each country has its own specific and defined interest that Iran would not necessarily attack Turkish troops but uh, Erdogan has gone on record to claim that is the case. 
this will obviously um, pose um, some questions as to why Iran would uh, Iran's proxies would intentionally target uh, Turkish troops unless they are perceived as a huge threat. Uh, Iran would not li uh, like to uh, raise uh, the specter with Turkey unnecessarily and uh, this is actually beyond me why um, they have done such a thing if at all that is true. Um, Turkey for its part has vowed to go all out and uh, attack any and every a soldier associated with the state army of Bashar al-Assad if and when he find uh, they have solid information that they are involved in attacking Turkish troops. So they have given themselves this uh, green light and uh, a unilateral uh, uh, approval that they will go all out. And in response, what the Russian Ministry of Defense has to say is that Turkish troop presence in Syria is simply worsening the situation. So what's happening is that once again, now instead of having um, uh, Gulf Arab-sponsored jihadis uh, versus uh, uh, Irani proxies and the Russians in Syria, including the army of Bashar al-Assad, now we have um, Turkey and Russia confronting each other uh, using Syria as the battleground and obviously it is the state of Syria and the people of Syria who are uh, stuck in between these two uh, opposing camps. The fallout goes to the ordinary people over there. Uh, while uh, President Erdogan is in Pakistan, it's interesting to note that uh, during the regime of uh, the Pakistan People's Party, um, I'm just mentioning this for context. There was a solid foreign policy from Islamabad that uh, they support the complete uh, sovereignty and security of the Syrian government, uh, that is Bashar al-Assad. And uh, recently, uh, during the, uh, the P uh, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz regime, uh, there was a slight tilt, a very slight tilt in which um, there was some sort of um, soft corner, at least uh, from the party level, toward claims by Gulf Arab countries that uh, Assad was responsible for slaughtering and there was, but on an overall, but when we speak on an overall basis, Pakistan has, um, its stated stance has been to maintain neutrality while emphasizing that the state of Syria, uh, its sovereignty should be respected because that's what Pakistan firmly believes in and it's an undeterred principle. So um, it remains to be seen whether uh, it doesn't really matter because uh, one does not think that uh, President Erdogan is expecting uh, support for the Turkish uh, narrative on Syria. Um, Pakistan is not really given any much of uh, credence or consideration in uh, any sort of conflict involving the Middle East until and unless it has something to do with, uh, for example, Yemen, which is directly uh, bordered with Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia is obviously a strategic ally of uh, Pakistan. But um, the possibility cannot be ruled out and uh, uh, on account of uh, President Erdogan's unequivocal support for the Kashmir cause, um, there are uh, expectations that they will be expecting some sort of uh, at least um, a statement of uh, discrete sympathy for uh, 
whatever Turkey is facing uh, in its uh, proclaimed efforts for peace. Coming to the next topic, which is U.S. budget allocation for the Indo-Pacific. The administration of uh, President Donald Trump has proposed a budget of almost 4.4 trillion dollars for the fiscal year 2020 to 21 and um, out of which 1.5 billion dollars have been proposed for foreign assistance in the Indo-Pacific region and 596 million dollars for diplomatic engagement so on an overall um, President Trump has proposed more than two billion dollars for the Indo-Pacific region specifically and uh, to quote what the State Department has to say I quote to enable countries to assess the full costs of Chinese loans now f f this obviously means unquote this obviously means that um, the agenda of Washington in the Indo-Pacific region which whether we like it or not includes Pakistan is that they're going to apprise these countries they've uh, about the so-called consequences adverse consequences of um, getting into the Chinese so-called debt trap diplomacy we've seen Alice Wells and her delegation from the State Department and National Security Council Lisa Curtis Al visiting Sri Lanka they warned them they shared their concerns with Nepal and um, when Alice Wells was in Pakistan she talked uh, she criticized uh, the CPEC and uh, so I think we can expect a lot of more uh, countries being approached by Washington's uh, South Asian Indo-Pacific strategists who, who will try to tell them or warn them against uh, falling into the so-called Chinese debt traps and the State Department uh, summary further includes I quote facilitate US private sector investment expand security cooperation in the region promote a US model I repeat a US model of democratic transparent responsive and business friendly governance and engage foreign audiences to strengthen alliances unquote now um, there is another important line which the State Department statement has and it says that to key uh, they want to keep tabs on what they call malign Chinese influence now whatever that is uh, one can assume that it definitely includes um, the Hamantota port city project in Sri Lanka the Gavada project in Pakistan and China's presence in Djibouti and so basically um, the entire Western Indian Ocean region, the strategic space intended for Indo-US hegemony in the long-term future, and that's where um, Washington believes uh, China could threaten America's larger uh, geostrategic interests. And uh, when this budget, the, these allocations were being announced, uh, concerns were also raised on the whole concept of the Belt and Road Initiative of China. So basically, um, if you, one could sum it up without sounding biased, and to be very clear, the one point, uh, the more than two billion dollars which are being allocated to the Indo-Pacific uh, region are 
aimed totally at discrediting uh, the Belt and Road Initiative project, which would obviously incur Im implications for Pakistan's own CPEC project. Coming to China's criticism of US on arms control and disarmament. Over the past week, um, Chinese officials, including its intelligentsia, um, um, security scholars, they have been uh, very vocal uh, about um, aggressive uh, US policies uh, and what they perceive to be hypocritical approaches toward arm control, arms control and disarmament issues. The first uh, points I'd like to mention are from uh, an interesting opinion editorial by Cheng Hanping, a senior research fellow and professor at the Collaborative Innovation Center of South Asia Sea Studies at Nanjing University. He mentions about the uh, statement by U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien on 5th of Feb in which he said that the U.S. and Russia would, I quote, start negotiations soon on arms control and on the nuclear issue, unquote. Uh, as we all know, the deadline to extend the U.S.-Russia Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or START for short, is imminent. In 2021, it's supposed to be extended, otherwise it will expire. Uh, yeah. Just a few months ago, in August 2019, the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, or the INF Treaty, with Russia and uh, to considerable domestic and international opposition. But the U.S. had its own way and there was still uh, a lot of pressure on Russia to try to make amends with Washington. Now, um, according to Cheng Hanping, um, China believes that the U.S. has approached Russia again to claim the moral high ground to rebuild its image and it wants to rope it, uh, rope China into the new pact as per suggestions from Trump staffers. So China for its part is convinced that uh, basically to uh, present itself as some sort of a, 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 a peace loving and a sincere um, nuclear state, the US wants to cajole China into the its uh, strategic engagement with Russia so that uh, uh, useful dividends could be yielded. And China believes that the US wants to jeopardize Beijing and Moscow's comprehensive strategic partnership. China believes the US will blame it if it does not participate. And Ching Hanping goes on to state that um, Beijing has clearly expressed disinterest in trilateral arms control negotiations. Uh, according to Cheng Hanping, China strongly believes that uh, America's real intentions are to break the existing norm system of arms control and disrupt the current strategic balance of nuclear powers. Um, he says that uh, in his understanding, uh, the new START treaty, if at all it is signed in 2021, is going to be gloomy. And um, he says it uh, without any, um, uh, any sort of uh, sugarcoating that um, the, if the U.S. withdraws from START altogether, then the world will become less secure. And that is true because, um, rationally speaking, it is up to the U.S. to explain why it withdrew from the START treaty, uh, the INF treaty in the first place, and what it intends to do, why it has suddenly decided to extend uh, a hand and try to involve China in the equation, which has nothing to do with it, except for obviously trying to spoil uh, the Sino-Russian strategic relations which 
as I mentioned in some of my earlier podcasts, are going to define 2020 and pose major challenges for the U.S. security establishment. In similar vein, um, Fang Xiaoji, a researcher at the Belt and Road Initiative Institute of Strategic and International Security at Fudan University, he wrote an opinion editorial which said, in his view, that the U.S. Navy's testing of uh, the Trident II Life Extension T5LE tactical nuclear weapon, codenamed W76-2, uh, I quote, sabotages world strategic stability, unquote. So um, these are just two of the um, scholarly opinion editorials which I found to be interesting. There are some others as well in some hardliner uh, papers such as Global Times. Um, the op-ed by Cheng Hanping was written for uh, Global Times. And, and these are actually, these scholars are the people who speak on behalf. Their, their statements echo the uh, sentiments uh, brewing within the Chinese um, strategic establishment. And we can clearly see that China is uh, not at all pleased with uh, the U.S.'s uh, double games when it comes to arms control and disarmament issues and it considers that uh, it itself and Russia should be wary of uh, American efforts to disrupt global strategic stability uh, at the cost of regional harmony. Coming to the last topic and that is Sri Lanka's push for the revitalization of SARC. Um, we all know that uh, recently uh, Sri Lankan Prime Minister Mahindra Rajapaksa was on a visit to India and uh, according to the photo ops which is what you see and evidently everything was all fine and well and everyone was all smiles and hugging each other and shaking hands but um, reportedly uh, during this visit uh, Prime Minister Rajapaksa urged New Delhi to record due focus for cooperation and progress in the South Asian Association of Regional Cooperation, SARC, aside from its continued focus on the BIMSTEC, uh, BIMSTEC, which is the Bay of Bengal initiative for multi-sectoral technical and economic cooperation. Now, the issue is that um, why Sri Lanka is concerned, all of a sudden concerned with SARC, is that um, the existing Secretary General of the SARC Secretariat uh, is a Pakistani diplomat, Mr. Amjad Hussain Seal, who has been at the helm since 2017 and he's about to, his tenure is about to end. And the next in line to his successor is a top Sri Lankan diplomat named Isala Virakun. So Isala Virakun will assume charge as the Secretary General of SARC Secretariat effective the 1st of March. and. Sri Lanka is very much adamant and it hopes that New Delhi would, uh, apart from BIMSTEC, it would try to balance its uh, regional approaches, its uh, multilateral engagements with regional countries, including Sri Lanka, through the Forum of SARC, which is obviously uh, important for Pakistan as well because Pakistan has repeatedly accused India of trying to overlook and ignore, or as we say, uh, put in the back burner the Secretariat of SARC uh, just simply because of uh, accusing Pakistan of uh, trying to foment terrorism uh, which are unfounded allegations as of yet and um, there have been many instances in which India has used all its in diplomatic clout to try to uh, degrade and uh, humiliate Pakistan, try to uh, disrupt and cancel SARC events to be held in Pakistan. Although uh, just last year, 
the Sark Law Conference was successfully held in Islamabad. But anyways, uh, in larger administrative and uh, policy making circles, it is imperative for India and is now even Sri Lanka that they revitalize SARC so that a common framework for understanding the channels which have already been laid many many years ago between Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan, India, Sri Lanka they all could uh, fare out properly and be utilized for uh, peace building. Uh, Sri Lanka wants greater connectivity and needs India to participate in the SARC because according to Colombo uh, until New Delhi is involved the framework will remain dysfunctional and that's what it wants to avoid. It wants to utilize its headship of SARC to try to bring to, to play a role which would obviously give the Rajapaksas uh, political leverage when it comes to the, um, promoting peace and stability in the region and they, they are really looking forward to use SARC uh, to project their own uh, conflict management uh, initiatives and also try to promote some sort of understanding and uh, open channels of communication between uh, India and Pakistan which have been disrupted uh, ever since uh, the India-Pakistan confrontation of 2019. So whether or not that goes about remains to be seen. Uh, the senior reporter who uh, filed this report on Sri Lanka's push uh, she approached the Ministry of External Affairs for comment, but uh, there was absolute silence. So obviously, um, uh, Mr. Jay Shankar, he is uh, not, uh, and none of his staff members are going to comment on because this would obviously um, shatter the all smiles and all cheers and hunky dory uh, uh, images, of photo galleries of the uh, Sri Lankan premier. Uh, touring India. Uh, India is just wants to show a positive and uh, everything is fine side to the world and this is something which could actually expose what the real agenda of uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa's visit was. So this is something uh, which uh, for Pakistan at least should show that uh, Sri Lanka is indeed serious about trying to uh, develop a shared uh, framework of common understanding between regional countries by according primacy to the SARC and, uh, and this is where um, a lot of uh, efforts need to be put into that uh, uh, Pakistan could use this moment to try to uh, wrest control out of uh, New Delhi's um, stranglehold on SARC. So if the uh, Pakistan wants to the SARC to um, uh, assume primacy in deciding the affairs of the region then uh, it could offer as much support to Sri Lanka as it could and try to shore up support from other uh, lesser influential countries such as Maldives and Nepal. That's it for um, this episode of uh, the Pakistan Geostrategic Review podcast. Thank you very much for your time and uh, if you have any sort of comments or feedback or if you would like me to comment on any specific issue in the coming week, uh, please do tag the official handle at the rate of PGR podcast or uh, you could uh, drop an email at uh, parkgeostrategicreview at protonmail.com. Allah Hafiz.